This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 21, recorded on December 19, 2019. listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abby Abdallah, and I'm here with a slew of doctors this morning. It's a whole bunch. Yes, we've got Dr. Fawner, as usual, Dr. Keller, and uh, we have a guest on the show, Dr. Scully. Good morning. How are you today? Fantastic. How about yourself? Not too bad. We're all sort of at the end of the semester here, wrapping up grades and... uh, those of us that are course directors, thankfully not me, are getting a ton of emails. Yeah, it's an early Christmas present that I enjoy that I don't have to deal with final grades, signing anything off. Uh, I, I defer that to you two gentlemen. Um, I take the responsibility, please. That's right. I've got extra work. I mean, if you really want to <laughs> I mean, I'm not, see how it goes. I, I am busy. <laughs> I, I can always shadow you, but please, I don't want to have anything involved with final grade determination. I think your handwriting's better anyways, though, so oh, maybe your maybe no, your John no, Hancock no. at the bottom would be nice. <laughs> no, you've never seen my handwriting in uh, full in full bloom. It's terrible. All right. So, uh, well, we are, uh, like I said, at the end of the semester here, mm-hmm. so... Um, we're going to be taking a, a holiday hiatus, whatever holiday you celebrate as our listeners. So uh, December 19th, right? Uh, we have a birthday for today, right? December 19th, 1943. That's uh, William C. DeVries. Yeah. Did yeah. I pronounce that correctly? Um, I think you do. Good. Um, an American cardiologist who was the first surgeon to perform the first artificial heart transplant on a human patient. Uh, He and his medical team made history on December 2nd, so same month, which is cool, December 2nd, 1982, by replacing the diseased heart of a patient with the Jarvik 7. That sounds like some type of space shuttle. It it uh, does sound very, uh, like, sort of a Sputnik. uh, I like that. (laughs) Jarvik. Uh, Jarvik 7, which was an artificial mechanical heart. And the uh, pumping action from this machine came from compressed air, from an electrical unit that was located outside of the patient's body. Now, again, this is kind of more of a short-term solution, right? right. Uh, this was only able to extend the patient's life for a short period of time. Uh, it was not. It was more of a stopgap. It couldn't uh, really and theoretically replace the pumping action of the actual heart. That's right. But still, a pretty important uh, medical innovation. I mean, at the time, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And uh, the FDA had approved the procedure in 1982, and I think in the U.S. only one or two of these uh, were actually done, but in total, worldwide, about 49 Jarvik 7 hearts were implanted by surgeons as a temporary bridge to transplantation. So not a long-term solution, no. and the longest a patient has ever survived on one of these machines is, what, about a 620 days? That's quite like a that. bit. I mean, that's, I mean that's, amount of time. that's a good amount of time. Given a choice between... What, dying within days or weeks versus potentially living for at most uh, 620 days, I'll take the extended extended time span. Particularly if if you're on a waiting list for a heart before they find a suitable one. But eventually the FDA uh, withdrew its approval of the Jarvik 7 heart transplants or replacements in 1990. That's uh, that, you know that might be fodder for a future episode. Um, that's uh, quite a transplant mm-hmm. waitlisting. That's something that maybe not a lot of people know a lot about. You always sure. see it on medical shows. Oh, uh, even the history of transplants. Yeah. I mean, Jarvik Seven Hearts. I yeah. mean, that's you know we we have there's artificial hearts out there. That's not a bad idea. I like that. Could yeah. even go so far as to look into and discuss the gifting organs for vouchers that's an interesting oh, yeah, topic sure. and of sure. course there's the black market too which for everything makes yeah. everything yeah. It sounds like we have at least two episodes very we'll interesting to, we'll have to bring dr scully back here for the new year that's or right send you a microphone yeah call in. we could probably make that happen cool okay collins i like it so we uh our topic for today and by the way listeners uh you want to stay tuned in till the end of the episode today because we have a new segment where uh, there's a uh, medical uh, sort of mystery, a medical riddle, 
and uh, if uh, you can uh, listen to it, and if you guess correctly, and you know, send send in your guesses to the email, uh, guess correctly. There's a uh, gift waiting for you, but we'll talk about that at the end of the episode. Yeah, let's wait. Absolutely. So, uh, what are we talking about today? Uh, medical marijuana. Yeah, medical marijuana, and it's kind of lines up pretty nicely with our special guest today, Dr. Cal Scully. Um, pharmacology expert, uh, one of our pharmacology experts, and um, this was a topic that you had recommended a few weeks ago, right? Yeah, medical marijuana, it's so a growing field. Tell us a bit about your background before, before oh, we yeah, get into sure, it. Sure. Tell, tell us who you are, sorry, your PhD, sort of research background. Yeah, we forgot to set the table. Let's, oh, no let's problem. Here. Uh, Kyle Scully, um, I got my PhD in interdisciplinary neuroscience from the University of Rhode Island, um, focusing on rational drug design. Um, my interests lie in developing bioactive molecules. Um, nature is far more creative than any chemist really can dream of being. Um, some of the compounds that have become pharmaceutical drugs uh, truly are designed by nature and then modified by chemists. So it's a resource that I feel like we need to move towards, not away from, uh, as we move forward in medicine. So what is in the... Uh what is in the marijuana plant that causes its specific effects on the body? So that's one of the biggest questions out there is what compound causes the effects we see? Because as we go through, we're going to talk about some of the effects that medical marijuana has and some of the indications it can be used for. Um, now, everyone knows about Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, THC. Now, that's the compound that causes the euphoria, the, the high that um, a recreational user would seek in marijuana. There are also hundreds of thousands of other bioactive compounds in the plant, uh, cannabinoids and also terpenes, which have not really been completely characterized. And, and what, what, what kind of molecule is a terpene or... I mean, like, so th we don't know whether it, it gives you a high or a low effect or... No, and so um, there have been some preliminary studies on the terpenes themselves. They are typically seen as the fragrance profile. They're very volatile. Okay. They're seen as the fragrance profile of the different strains. Um, so so like that's some of the bigger differences between the strains is that terpene profile and the cannabinoid profile within the plant. So as a, a, a non-chemist sitting over here, are there other types of natural products that have terpenes? Yes, absolutely. Um, similar plants, um, there are piney-scented uh, marijuana strains, and those same pineans can be found in other herbs like sage, oregano, things like that. It just it interests me because uh, you know, that's, that's one big area of research that we do here is natural products and um, oregano oil is, is pretty potent when it comes to antimicrobial effects. And so, you know, it, it begs the question of whether we might see some antimicrobial effects with, with some of these compounds from, from um, medical marijuana when uh, that's a, a now open field to us, which wasn't op an open avenue previously. Absolutely. If you want to co-write that proposal, CBD oil and effects on uh, bacterial growth. That's oh, yeah. Like that's I, an I'd easy love project. to. Pretty yeah. good project. Students yeah, are interested. Yeah, very, very interested. Any, yeah. I mean, it, it, after all, it's a plant. It's not something synthesized. Mm -hmm. So right. we, we find uh, uh, the majority of our compounds uh, – well, new drugs now are immunotherapy, right? I mean, we've, we've talked about that sure. before. But uh, – you know, a, a lot of the compounds we see are natural products. Yep. Absolutely. Where penicillin comes from. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So in terms of kind of uses and treatments, um, medical marijuana can be prescribed for the treatment of multiple different types of ailments and disorders, right? So anything from cancer to Crohn's disease, um, epilepsy, so as an anti-kind of seizure medication. Correct. Right? Anticonvulsant mm -hmm. is one of the anecdotal um, effects that has gained a lot of traction. And in terms of kind of the greatest amount of data and evidence for the therapeutic effects of medical marijuana, 
It mainly is prescribed for the reduction and treatment of chronic pain, nausea, vomiting. Um, I know what for chemo to help alleviate chemotherapy uh, symptoms. Yeah, right? and that varies uh, state to state with mm -hmm. the medical marijuana policies of the state. Um, there, every state has its own list of acceptable indications. Okay, so. <clears throat> How does it, in terms of sort of like the pain management, do, do we know how it uh, helps with pain? Does it block pain receptors or we still don't know a lot of the mechanisms? The, me the mechanisms haven't been completely fleshed out. Um, there are, there have been elucidated pathways that um, are involved in feedback with the endogenous opioid systems mm -hmm. without activating the opioid receptors themselves. But again, Research is pretty limited as to uh, establishing that as the definitive mechanism by which pain is reduced. And as we're going to talk about, for such a large and, I guess, kind of burgeoning field when it comes to medical marijuana being used as a medical treatment, research and kind of data are a bit scarce, right? I mean, actual studies and research on this, I expected it to be a little bit more, I guess, right? And that's because the fact of what it's a schedule one drug. It is a schedule one drug. Um, it it's difficult to gain traction and gain the ability to look at the variety of strains uh, when you have a schedule one substance as your uh, compound of choice that you're looking to the investigate. The, the, the other problem, I think, in terms of the uh, dearth of sort of uh, research on it is that, uh, as we all know, most research in this country is funded by the federal government. The NIH, the NSF fund more, most science research. And because it is still on the federal level illegal to consume, grow, or uh, do anything with marijuana effectively, uh, that has limited the ability of scientists to do research on uh, on marijuana. Now, that's not to say that it was uh, impossible to do that research, but the the barriers uh, were much much higher because it is a controlled substance. You still could do research uh, on it, but you have to get uh, all sorts of government approval to be able it's to do that difficult. research. Absolutely, yes. made it made it much much more difficult to both get funding and to actually uh, get approval. But in terms of its benefits, and again, we're going to talk about a few different aspects of this issue in this field, but in terms of what data are available and what the current research status is, um, it has been found that the um, cannabinoids, the active chemicals in medical marijuana, have been used to treat a variety of different, like I've said, um, ailments. Uh, related to different diseases, right? It can reduce anxiety, uh, reduce inflammation, relieve pain, control nausea and vomiting. That's a result of chemotherapy for cancer treatment. And I think a few studies have even found it's been able to kill and eradicate cancer cells and even slow tumor growth. But of course, I guess that depends on, you know, the stage, the type of cancer, sure. factors like that. A lot of that has probably also been done in vitro, right? We, yeah. I don't think right. there's been a lot of in vivo evidence for, no, for the cancer that. studies. Yes. Yeah. I mean, not a lot of research has been done in terms of, like I said, with like antimicrobial properties. But, you know, I, I just want to maybe reiterate or at least point out uh, a lot of people I know back um, from a lot of relatives that I know, they think that all of these, anything having to do with medical marijuana is about getting high. And, mm -hmm. You know, what Dr. Scully was saying is there's a lot of different compounds in this natural product that don't. For example, CBD is everywhere. Now, you can't – it's on the TV. It's on the radio. Even even driving around – even pharmacies have signs yeah. up that say, yeah. oh, CBD sold and, here. And again, a lot of this isn't regulated by the FDA yet. So you got to be careful that, you know, what you're getting is, is what you, you think you're getting and maybe it's not what it's supposed to be. But yeah. – it's not the THC. It's not what's giving people the high. It's a, it's just another natural compound that's found in that plant. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that gives a lot of. Um, that's where a lot of the pushback comes from. And some of the negative stigma. Yes, yeah, yeah, you I know, well, you're just getting high. Well, you're actually not. Yeah. I mean, it's not that compound. So. Right. We're seeing medical benefits from a different compound in there that's not getting you high. There are strains out there that are borderline THC negative. Mm -hmm. um, they are CBD only strains. Um, and the effects 
that are used to treat the indications are still there without the high. Yeah. So it does have its benefits. Now there there is argument that THC helps to alleviate some of the indications and some of the uh, harder to treat pain and things like that. But it, it there have been studies that show that CBD alone is capable of treating a lot of these indications. Now this this might be an ignorant ignorant question. What's uh, uh, what are the composition of THC slash CBD differences between say marijuana and hemp? Like people talk a lot about hemp. Hemp used right. to be some some places it's legal to grow and uh, use for agricultural purposes and. Right. Here in Pennsylvania, it is legal to grow hemp. Um, and there are several farms. There was actually, with the misconceptions surrounding hemp, there was actually a uh, theft of crop here in uh, Pennsylvania recently. Thinking, and Thinking that it had THC in it. Correct. Right. And so, I mean, it's very likely that there there's a product out there being illegally distributed that has no THC. Right. Um, and so... So does hemp have CBD? It does. Okay. It does. It's it's one of the major sources of CBD without THC, so that a further separation doesn't have to be done. Right. So you can see right. some right. of those extractions done. So as with kind of any medication, right? This is not kind of a cure-all thing, and there are side effects that have been observed and reported with uh, treatment using medical marijuana, right? Um, I think reports of depression, dizziness, accelerated heartbeat and uh, low blood pressure. And it's also been reported to affect judgment, coordination. Basically, this has to be used responsibly as with, you know, any type, most types of drugs, correct? Absolutely. Uh, I would say, so. I mean, yeah, any, 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 I don't think there's a medication out there that you should use irresponsibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely, yeah, for sure. That's a doctor's advice. That's right. <laughs> yeah. well, any <laughs> responsible doctor will say the same thing. Yes. Yeah, so uh, PSA for everybody, use, use medication and drugs responsibly. As prescribed. You know, and, yes. and, and recently uh, another, I think, health detriment, uh, lethal, was the, uh, the vaping-associated use of marijuana. So, I mean, we're really talking about, you know, lung damage as well. Mm -hmm. So the, the whole vaping issue and, and medical marijuana, well, and marijuana usage, um, that clearly is, is dangerous as well. Well, I think about other, depending on patients who are using it and the health status of those patients, it could exacerbate, you know, other lung issues, maybe um, further uh, cause severe complications with bronchitis, COPD, um, potentially asthma, I would suppose. So again, all those factors have to be taken into consideration before med medical marijuana is used and prescribed. Absolutely. And with the vaping issue, recognizing that a lot of these cartridges are unregulated or yeah. were prepared illegally, um, we don't know what's in them. So right. diligence in buying the appropriate things could help alleviate some of that when if a product becomes regulated by the FDA, then we know what's in it. Anything that comes out that has the same active ingredient has to be bioequivalent, uh, meaning that it has to have the same effects at the same doses. Um, and none of the additives or binders can affect the kinetics of the compound in the body. That's a good point. One thing that I found very interesting, and I saw this reported on the news in the past few weeks, I believe, is um, during teenage years. And, you know, if medical marijuana is prescribed for a developing brain during the teenage years, how exactly would medical marijuana affect, you know, mental function as well as IQ? So, you know, would it hamper, you know, brain development? Again, I would think that there are limited data sets out there that can conclusively say that this would impair mental development in any way. But it is a potential risk factor that needs to be investigated, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, all of these compounds are acting on receptors and channels that are already present in the human body. So to say that taking something isn't going to affect signaling in all of the tissue where that receptor and channel is present would be short-sighted. If it's just for the high without recognizing the other 
effects in other tissues, your off-target and off-site um, effects, you know, that, that could be something that needs to be investigated. Yeah, I mean, but, uh, I mean, in terms of the medical use of it, uh, I, I don't know if it's uh, usually prescribed as sort of a curative, right? Uh, it's usually prescribed for uh, managing uh, side effects or managing uh, pain, chronic pain, things like that. I, I, I don't know, do, uh, have you heard of cases where teenagers are prescribed medical marijuana? I have not. Un unless they're like terminal cases? I have not as far as prescribing. That said, some of the anecdotal um, evidence that supports the use of CBD in seizure disorders is in pediatric seizure disorders. Um, one okay. of the original CBD-only strains was designed to treat um, a patient that had intractable seizures. Oh, good to know. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, kind of along these lines, because uh, dealing with pediatrics, more teenager populations, it's always, I, I was always told that it's a gateway drug. It's going to open up, you know, hmm. you to other drugs. I, I mean, how, I, I mean, as far as I know, THC is not addictive. You don't actually get addicted to it. So um, is it just that it, it, maybe you're, open to try new things or is it really a gateway drug? I mean, anytime you have a compound in the human body, it's going to change the expression of receptors and enzymes in response to this compound that comes from outside the body. We're going to alter the way the body responds to those endogenous substances as well, the substances that our body creates. Um, that said, the kinetics of the CBD compounds and the THC is such that it stays in the body for a long period of time. Now, most of the highly addictive drugs that we see out there have very rapid and robust effects, but are cleared very quickly. And it's that cycling of high levels, low levels, high level, low levels that helps to build that learning um, aspect with addiction. So I think in 2018, the FDA did um, approve a medication for use in children for the treatment of two rare forms of uh, epilepsy. So it can CBD, be CBD, CBD or, um, or uh, cannabidiol. Yeah. So um, it's, it has very potent anti-seizure properties, I think, as we've discussed, but um, doesn't produce the high. So... I guess it's just with select cases, and from what I read, these two rare forms of epilepsy, well, they are quite rare. So, And in terms of getting back to the point that uh, Dr. Keller brought up earlier in terms of uh, is it addictive or not, or uh, overdosing gateway drugs, such things like that, I don't think there's been a report, uh, and I could be wrong, but I don't think there's been a report anywhere in the medical literature of anybody overdosing on marijuana. Uh, you would have to smoke pounds and pounds of it like per day mm -hmm. to get to a point of uh, 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 any sort of near overdose or disruption of, of uh, basic uh, major biological functions, yeah. right? No, I've, I have never come across a report like that. I've never seen if one exists in the literature. Yeah. No. But whether no. it's a gateway drug or not, I... I I don't know. I don't think there's been studies that have proven that uh, you are more likely to uh, uh, get addicted to other drugs because you smoke marijuana or you have in the past, right? Now, but uh, you, you bring a good point earlier. It might be a personality thing. Someone who's more willing mm -hmm. uh, maybe yeah. to try marijuana is a personality that, hey, could be willing also to experiment try with other drugs. Try that and go yeah, further, yeah. yes. Right. Yeah, chemical dependence versus... Yeah, enjoyment, I guess, right. are, 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 you know, are linked, but that. could be separate issues, too. Right, right. So how exactly is this overseen by the FDA? Um, is it a similar type of oversight and, I guess, regulation with medical marijuana as it is for prescription drugs, or is there a difference? Again, we, we look back to the fact that uh, medical marijuana is federally illegal. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So the states are kind of left to regulate themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the states have established that growers must provide samples to be tested and quantified for THC and CBD. Mm -hmm. But again, it's very difficult to differentiate 
the composition of even the same strain from the same grower grown at a different time, you will see differences. And we see this in all natural products preparations. Any slight variation in pH, soil, light, temperature can change how much of any one compound is expressed. And that's something that I think is a little bit of a concern, right, is the strength and the ingredients that are found in medical marijuana can differ quite a bit depending on where you buy it and even within, you know, that specific, I guess, distributor or supplier, right? So I guess that's something that needs to be further investigated. I don't know if there is a way to make that consistent across the board. It's very difficult. I think with cloning techniques um, and automation, some growers are becoming very proficient and even some uh, at-home growers that take care of uh, their loved ones, they are becoming very proficient at getting product consistency. But again, with any plant, you're going to have differences. You're going to have differences from one side of a uh, grow facility to another. You could have the potential for differences, just environmental, um, you know, what's next to them could change mm-hmm. the composition. Could, uh, could some of these compounds be synthesized in a lab setting? Many of them could. Some of them are difficult to synthesize from uh, known starting materials. But yeah, I mean, it, it just comes down to I feel like a plant is probably going to be more proficient um, at producing some of these complex chemicals. Nature is far more creative and efficient than we can be synthetically sometimes. I mean, you can do extractions in a lab, right? You can purify THC and then add a certain, say, milligram per Mm -hmm. pill or something like that. But with a lot of medical marijuana, I think, uh, part of the issue is that we don't know that it is just the THC or just the one CBD, right? There are hundreds and mm-hmm. hundreds of other compounds in the natural plant itself. There's that, some ambiguity there, yeah. Right, on which part of these natural compounds is actually responsible for the relief of symptoms. There's so little data on that that uh, we don't know, right? So just doing the CBD alone or the THC alone might actually not give intended benefits. It's important to regulate that, I think. You right. know, like yeah. That's kind of what we're talking about. Right. How, how do you know you're getting what you get? I mean, scientists have done studies where they've, they've taken edibles that are marketed and, and the levels aren't even close to what they, they said right. were, were in their product. And so, you know, if I was using that as a, a pain management or whatever, how do I know I'm getting what I'm supposed to be getting? And that's, I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the... A problem. Absolutely. That's something that needs to be addressed as policy is created and as the uh, industry moves forward, if it continues to move forward. Um, with that, too, is that not all of the effects can be attributed to any one compound. Right. So That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. It, it's likely that the combination of the cannabidiols and the cannabinoids and the THC have a more robust effect than any one would on its own. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is going to take some time to elucidate whether or not THC alone can have an effect that would not be present at a higher level in combination with the other CBDs. So just out of curiosity, what I mean, uh, the uh, federal government, the DEA, right, uh, Drug Enforcement Administration, lists marijuana as a uh, category one or class one drug, right? Or schedule one drug. Uh, What is in that league? What what else is in schedule one? Anybody know? I know the one big one is heroin, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of grouped side by side there. LSD. Yeah. Cocaine in there as well? Maybe. I think, I don't know if this is a debate topic we want to get into, but in terms of that classification system, yeah, what's the is, reason, that, right? is that like, classification system outdated or outmoded in any way? Does oh, I the think classification it system itself need to be updated? Because I think within that classification system, it states that the substance is grouped within that system or that specific um, class have no currently accepted medicinal value. And we have seen that medical marijuana can alleviate the symptoms, right? Can alleviate certain symptoms. Sure, absolutely. So that's that's not true. Contrast. Then. So it's in the probably wrong category. I would think so, but no, I think that's where, as a society, we're moving towards mm-hmm. little by little. I mean, states can regulate medical marijuana, but with CBD 
gaining traction. And as far as I know, CBD oil is not illegal or else they wouldn't be able to offer it. Yeah. 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 We'll see. Well, and I mean, you also have states now that are not only medical marijuana is legal, but they're moving towards recreational as well. Um, But back to the point about the classification system, I think that initially things are classified out of an abundance of caution Mm -hmm. to protect the general public. But since it's classification, science has moved forward in a way that we're able to provide evidence now that the substances and the compounds produced by the marijuana plant are able to uh, show medical benefits. So I think reclassification and being able to readdress these things is probably something that would be prudent. That's a good point. And I mean, the current status as of right now, I think it's approximately 33 states and um, the District of Columbia that have medical marijuana programs or at least um, medical marijuana legislation that's currently pending. And an additional 16 states have passed laws to allow more limited access to um, medical marijuana. And I think last I checked, again, I, this should be accurate for the last few years, but an estimated 2.6 million individuals in the United States are currently certified for medical marijuana use. I imagine that number is maybe has maybe gone up, but at least 2.6 million people. So, I mean, it's gaining traction and acceptance for use to treat, you know, medical conditions. I guess, what's the next step? I mean, I would hope that more states adopt it, but what would be the next step in terms of allowing more easier accessibility for medical marijuana? I would have to say continued research. Um, in order to broaden the scope of use, you're going to have to have evidence for the condition in order for the federal government to really accept it as a viable treatment. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, oh. uh, just to go back to the, uh, uh, just slightly to the uh, sort of category on, as a Schedule 1 here, um, apparently there has been a... Um, an act that uh, a removal of cannabis from Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act that has been proposed repeatedly since 1972 in Congress, and it has failed repeatedly, and they've tried a bunch of times since, at least a few more times, it looks like, but it had, um, it was not a Schedule One drug up until 1970, when it was put as a Schedule One drug, and it was... Um, uh, a, a Nixon uh, administration type uh, uh, war on drug business that uh, placed it on the uh, Schedule One, and uh, looks like there might have been a, a racial component to that in terms of placing that drug on Schedule One to sort of criminalize certain groups uh, in this country, which is interesting. But that's for another topic. That certainly would be. Yeah, that, that, yeah we yeah, could yeah. talk about that for a while. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and like uh, Dr. Scully said. Um, without further more in-depth intensive research, uh, we won't have that clarity that we need to determine what exactly medical marijuana prescriptions can be used for. So, Absolutely. With, uh, without funding and acceptance and legal ramifications, uh, those are the things that need to be addressed uh, before I think people will be willing to take on that kind of research and uh, really get the trials necessary uh, with the patient groups. So what is, I guess, the biggest concern from maybe anti-medical marijuana activists? Uh, What would be the biggest concern for using medical marijuana? The argument against. Yeah. Uh, I would probably say that it has to be the effect on the developing brain, the effect on the developing individual, um, as well as long-term use. Longitudinal studies would be necessary um, to find out whether or not these effects that have been widely publicized and um, generally accepted, Mm -hmm. uh, if they hold any water. And you found, um, when we were kind of doing our research, you found um, a few interesting papers, and we'll talk about the results and data from a few of these, but you have, there has been 
some research done on patients who were prescribed medical marijuana, and they have looked at kind of changes in cognition, cognitive function, and brain activation. Right, right. right. Yeah. And so this one study that I really liked, and again, I wish we could do an entire episode on this, but uh, they examined um, medical marijuana patients who were using it for various medical conditions, and what they tracked them for three months. They did. They tracked them for three months for uh, executive function. Okay. So looking at task-related brain activation, you know, they uh, completed a specific test to um, assess cognitive function and then used um, MRI, uh, functional MRI, to collect data concerning what exactly is happening with consistent medical marijuana use on brain function, right? Yes, they did. And so what exactly did that paper find? What were the main results there so in terms of cognitive function? The findings found that they uh, they exhibited um, good, better function, uh, improvement in clinical state and health-related measures, as well as a notable decrease in other medication use, particularly opiates and uh, benzodiazepines mm-hmm. after three months of treatment with uh, medical marijuana. To me, that's, again, another pretty important benefit when it comes to the, the relationship of potential uh, medical marijuana applications with other healthcare controversies, I guess, right? Absolutely. With the opioid crisis, this could be used as maybe not a preventative measure, but definitely something that could help limit the impact of excessive opioid use. Right. If medical marijuana um, or CBD can be used to decrease opioid dependence, it could be a mechanism of treatment um, and recovery for individuals that are suffering from opioid dependence. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the thing about medical marijuana. I don't, I don't think it's uh, been shown to cure any diseases, right? I, I, I think its effect is going to be, or most of its, if I, if I was betting, I'd say most of its marketed use in the future is going to be uh, as a co-treatment for potential side effects or relieving uh, sort of long-term effects that our current meds cannot control in any way, right? Uh, uh, in terms of, say, uh, long-term pain that, you know, you don't want to get on meds for or something like that. But I don't, I don't think we'll get to a curative use of THC or CBD. But again, we, we don't know. The research is not there. Right. It's a catch-22. I mean, <laughs> we, don't, we don't have it available for research, but yet they want more research done before they'll make it available for research. Yeah. So right. that's kind of where we're at. And I think that a lot of our prescription medications are symptomatic treatments. Um, you know, part of that comes with the fact that we don't truly understand the etiology and the underlying uh, pathophysiology of some of the diseases we're trying to treat. I keep going back to seizure disorders as the um, perfect example of this, where we don't understand some of the pathophysiology as to how a seizure propagates or how to stop it. Um, most of our medications just decrease signaling and um, it's based on if it works, it works, right? Some of the, some of our drug development does tend to be serendipity. Yeah. And again, there have been numerous animal studies, right? Uh, focusing on... For THC um, or CBD? Um, for CBD. And so looking at CBD, there have been a large scale or large number rather of animal studies that have shown, um, you know, impacts and benefits for the treatment of PTSD, um, helping with kind of behavioral effects, um, possible anxiety effects as well. But once more, more data are required um, in human trials. Right, and a lot of this, a lot of those effects are um, rooted in anecdotal evidence as well. you know, one of the reasons that a person would seek uh, THC is for its anxiolytic effects where they're able to be comfortable in social situations, which I think lends to the study of um, CBD and uh, cannabis in anxiety disorders. Yeah. So I guess that brings us to maybe the larger question and something that maybe some of our audience members will 
be thinking about, hopefully, as they listen to this episode, is what side do you fall on or what is what are each of our stances on this topic? I guess I'll go first. I mean, I assume maybe we're all on the same page with slightly differing opinions. I mean, this is definitely something that needs more research and I think should be more heavily implemented, right? I would certainly agree. I think that with anything, we have to use caution before releasing mm-hmm. it out into the general public. That said, um, we need to do the research before we can say that it's not safe or not medically relevant or that before we debunk the claims of individuals who have been forced to use it illegally mm-hmm. um, but have shown the benefits, the, the anecdotal evidence is very strong. And um, I think to ignore it and to continue on the path that we historically have lends to uh, – a decrease in our knowledge. I mean, our I don't goal is science. Benefit, I don't think there's any benefit to making research more restrictive in I agree. this case. Absolutely. I think the evidence definitely points to, okay, um, we need more trials. We need to investigate these effects more, the individual components of the plant. Um, who knows what benefits are hidden there, but will only be elucidated via more research. Absolutely. Dr. Keller? Well, thank you for putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, so, I, I don't know. I'm of the opinion that it's a plant. And here, here we are in the pharmaceutical industry manufacturing and creating our own molecules without any clue how that's going to impact biology. And I, I mean planet-wide, not just the person. I mean we can do drug-drug interactions in a dish. But then here you go. Good luck with this compound that we made. But yeah, you got a perfectly good plant growing out there with molecules that can potentially treat or manage pain. I again I don't know if we'll ever see it as a cure. We won't we don't know. But we do know it it manages pain. Why in the world wouldn't we use that mm-hmm. over over opioids, which we're manufacturing, which makes people more addictive, mm-hmm. kills people. That's 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 documented to documented. Yes. Now now the opioid costing and billions of dollars. Billions of dollars and, and now lawsuits and and all that, and it makes it's addictive, and I, I don't, you know, I don't know if marijuana is addictive. I mean, that's I don't think it's a gateway drug, but it's a plant. It mm-hmm. grows out there. We've used plants for many, many things. Whether as a whole, I know you're a a whole plant guy, right? Not there, there, there's definitely uh, room for both the the whole plant okay. and the isolation down to a single you, molecule. So you're an extract? Are you are you a single molecule guy or a whole plant guy? I, there's evidence for both. I don't right. think you can do one without the other and definitively say that you've found the answer. But they're natural products. They're made out in nature. Like we, you know, if you put a seed in the ground and it grows, why can't you eat it? Mm-hmm. I guess. I, oh, I but I mean, so are toxic mushrooms, right? <laughs> so what are you going to do? I mean, if you're stupid enough to eat a toxic mushroom, that's, that's your right, own that's choice. Right, that's but right. what are we going to, we're going to say, no, you can't, you can't grow those. No, uh, I'm, I'm uh, not against it. So, no, so I, know you're not. I, I, I think, I, I think you're going to, uh, uh, Fauner, I think you're going to get the same answer from all of us because we're, I wasn't expecting a huge uh, division here. I just right. wanted to see what everybody's right. personal uh, anecdotal evidence stances were, I well, suppose. I, I think at the end of the day, we're, we're truly at heart all scientists. And what we would all like to see is more research done on the topic, right? Because Absolutely. we're science nerds Absolutely. and we'd like to see data. <laughs> uh, we're, we're all advocates of uh, let's uh, research the heck out of it. And if there's a benefit, by all means, why not? And like you said, it's a natural plant. And uh, who are we to say, uh, no, you you can't have it because it, of whatever reason, while it may potentially have a beneficial uh, effect, we, we need to look into it, absolutely. Well, one thing that, again, based on sensationalization in different media portrayals and reports, I guess the things that surprised me most during research for this episode was, A, the fact that research is somewhat restrictive right now in terms of further examining the effects of this plant, but then B, it seems like a lot of the benefits and the positives and the scientific evidence that we've reviewed today, and we've only touched on a small corner of this, right? Mm-hmm. We could do Absolutely. a week-long series of episodes on this. But anything you hear about in the media, 
like I said, in the past few weeks, they've been examining, oh, this is how it can affect, you know, the teenage brain and the development of the brain and potential IQ deficits and cognitive disruption. And there, there yes, a... I'm not discounting that, but for the average viewer, they look at that and immediately their mind's made up, oh, no, this medical marijuana prescription uh, can't be the way, right? And I think it's really detracting from the argument of for people who are in chronic pain and for, for especially um, trying to limit numbers of opioid addictive cases, this can be a huge benefit, right. but we need the research. Well, I mean, the political you know, stance aside, it's a historical perspective too. If you, if you teach young individuals that this is to be demonized, they will demonize it. Mm -hmm. And then once you teach a new generation that it's something that could be accepted, that does change. Yeah, right. and I think that's where we're at. I mean, in the... The, the 70s, it was, like you said, it was put on as a class. And that was really to, to stop other drugs from being used, not specifically marijuana. So times change. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they do. And I think there's a, a, there's a, a, in the media and there's a narrative out there with the public that conflates medical marijuana with uh, potheads or people that just want to smoke all day and not, not necessarily for a medical reason, right? Uh, and, and or what the you know media calls potheads, whatever. We're not going to get into that. But what I'm saying is that there's 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 a a, a uh, sort of conflation of like oh someone needs it for a legitimate medical use, and those people that legitimately need it for medical use, uh, they're not abusers of the mm -hmm. uh, of the product, right? And and you know and there's people out there who just want to you know smoke it for the hell of it, which in states that allow it, hey you do you right? You know, there, I mean, that would, that's a whole rabbit hole we could exactly. go down to with, you know, comparative versus alcohol, comparative mm -hmm. versus cigarettes. You know, we, we allow ourselves legally to use products that are basically have been, poison, have been associated with disease. Yes. Right. Um, you know, it, it's, it's funny that one, one plant could be singled out. Um, as, as we move forward, I think that's something that will get addressed. Uh, mm -hmm. That's right. But that's a whole other rabbit hole. That could be another its own series. Sure, sure. Okay. Any uh, any final thoughts on this? Any any topics we haven't really covered or uh, anything we want to add? That's a lot. Yeah, we did touch on a lot. I think we gave a pretty good overview of this. Um, I guess I'm hoping that in terms of next steps in the next few years, the uh, the shackles, if you will, are taken off. You know, research and that more studies can examine the therapeutic effects of this in human trials. I agree, studies are needed. I, I certainly think and hope that we're moving in that direction. I think it's a positive uh, step that more states are taking the lead and that may dictate um, some of the federal changes that may be necessary. Yeah, I mean, I think at some point that's going to twist the arm of the federal government to step in and say, well, there are enough of our citizens in enough of our states uh, consuming this medically that we need to actually look into it and regulate it more and uh, uh, hopefully without stifling some of the research capabilities or some of the research that might come out of it. All right. Fantastic. Sounds good. Now, fascinating. Dr. Kalev, fascinating indeed. Fascinating. I had to, yes. <laughs> now, well, we got, we got we have a new you, segment. So we need a fascinating We have a new okay. segment. Dr. Keller, do you want to yeah, take the lead on that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have a new segment called Guess This, where uh, we will, uh, every episode, uh, have a, uh, oh, a, a trivia, scientific trivia question or scenario for you, our listeners, to respond to. So, all right. Uh, we're very excited about this. Um, so you're going to have to do a tiny bit of research, but I, I think that's unless you know, and that's that's even better. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we're going to ask a question after the scenario, and we'll ask you to respond by emailing thebiobusters at gmail.com. And the first person who responds with the We'll do a random. We'll do a random. Oh, we'll do random. So yeah, rather than first answers okay. come yeah. in, and then we'll randomly draw and well, see who's the lucky person. Just is. think, if if it's the first responder, that means everybody's going to want to listen to this podcast. That's right. As soon as it goes up. Well, with certain questions saying. and certain uh, formats of the trivia, that we is might fine. Do first come, first serve. I'm a random. Out, I'm outvoted as a guest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so and the winner will get a shout out and a little gift. We'll leave so, the gift as a mystery. Yes. Yeah, so. 
Oh, we will. Okay. For now. Okay. The gift is a mystery. It is a nice gift. It is. Um, I would, I would want one. Um, okay. So today's inaugural question focuses on the Great Pretender or syphilis caused by the spirocrete bacterium Trepidema pallidum. Syphilis has been uh, around for centuries, and it was dubbed the Great Pretender because uh, the multiple stages of syphilis has, have different symptoms associated with them that can mimic a lot of different diseases. And so uh, often patients might be misdiagnosed because syphilis would look like that. Um, now, syphilis is a completely curable disease today with, with antibiotics, but of course, before the advent of antibiotics, um, it, was, it was difficult to treat. So our question, today's question is, what other infectious disease was used to cure syphilitic patients before the advent of antimicrobials? And so, so we want you to, to think about that, Google that, and uh, maybe uh, send an email to us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. And we will randomly select a winner for from this, the correct answers. From the correct answers. That's right. For this inaugural, and uh, we will read your answers uh, on the air next next time we record. So and do we want to have a time limit for submission? Maybe in the next well, week between now and when we record episode. our next episode. So okay. uh, get your answers in as soon as you can. It is a holiday question. That's right. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, syphilis and Christmas—they go hand in hand. Oh right? yeah, syphilis and Christmas. And uh, all right, that's that's our show for today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for The Biobusters. You can use any podcast catcher to download our episodes. You can listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. And uh, I'm Delbert Ebi Abdallah. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert. You can find Christopher Fauner at... Fauner916. Fauner916. Dr. Scully... Are you... I am not a Twitter user. Not I'm not active user. at all, no. I appreciate this, Dr. Skelly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a tweeter. Dr. Keller is also not a Twitter user. No. Well, but let's you can find him. Up and uh, tag you guys uh, in the right. episode uh, tagline well, so on Twitter. Appreciative. And you're welcome to come harass Dr. Keller on the LeCom campus. He's available to take all your questions today, tomorrow, and every day. Yeah, stop by on Christmas I Eve and, you know, I will good luck finding be him. here on Christmas Eve. Oh, you will? Yes, I will. Okay, well, give him a good uh, Christmas Eve to uh, That's end, right. end the semester on. That's right. All right, well, thank you all for listening, and thanks to Baha Namani for the music. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.